Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee. The 2023 Marlborough Book Festival was a fantastic weekend and we are looking forward to sharing the recordings with you very soon. For now, enjoy this great session from the 2022 Book Festival. Tonight, our chair is Dr. Paula Morris. My introduction to Paula was on opening night, and I feel as though I'm now standing in the presence of two immensely clever, wonderful, skilled women, and I am in awe. Paula is an award-winning novelist, an important advocate of New Zealand's literature scene. She's the director of the Master in Creative Writing at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. We're so very pleased that we can be here today, Paula, with you for this special interview. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jane. That was very nice. Tēnā koe, Pat. Kia ora. It's very nice to be here talking to you in front of a a raging fire. (laughs) We have our library library behind us. Thank you all for coming out on this... (laughs) This chilly night, we were talking backstage about growing up not wearing shoes, but Jane told us that if we lived here on a chilly morning, we'd want to put shoes on. We'll take our shoes off later. (laughs) So to introduce Pat very briefly, as you know, she is an icon of New Zealand literature, and she would also hate being described as such, because she's extremely modest. Um, I was thinking today, I thought, why hasn't Pat become a dame? And then I looked it up, and actually you are secretly one. In 2007, you became a distinguished companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And that was that little time period, remember, where people weren't knights and dames? They were just that. And when the law changed, or when John Key changed it so he could become a sir, um, (laughs) I'm I'm just, you know, obviously exaggerating. That wasn't why I did it at all. Uh, People were given the choice. You were given the choice if you wanted to become a dame, but you said no. Do you remember saying no? Or do uh, yes, you... that's, uh, yes, I do remember saying no. Um, I, I just didn't feel like a dame. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, of the five who chose to just stick with being distinguished, three of you are writers, and two, uh, the other two are Joy Cowley and Witi Ihumaira. Yes. So you're in good company there. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Pat has written seven novels, story collections, non-fiction a fantastic memoir that we'll be discussing tonight from the centre, Writer's Life. Pat said to me, what are we going to talk about? And I said, your book. And she said, oh. So uh, <laughs> that's all we're doing, whether she likes it or not. Luckily, at the, in the beginning of the book, there's a list of all Pat's awards. Because she's so modest, she won't bring them up in the course of the book. So if you want to check all her accomplishments, they are in the front. And I just have a little quote here for the 2008 Newstat Prize, the big international prize, based in the US, uh, which was awarded to Pat. Joy Harjo said of your work that you write provocative, compassionate, and beautiful tales. And I thought those words provocative and compassionate absolutely apply to your work. So kia ora and very pleased to be interviewing you tonight. I wondered if you would mind if we talk a little bit about your childhood, because that is really a considerable section of this book. 
Many other New Zealand writers are publishing memoirs right now. I'm expecting to be asked to write mine at any moment. <laughs> and rude laughter from the audience. <laughs> People would be dying to see what I would say. Um, but a lot of, of writers now take many volumes. We talked about this. C.K. Stead's got three volumes of memoirs. Witty's already got two out and he's working on a third. So... Are you, are you already working on a sequel? Oh, no. That one was... <laughs> I, don't, I, I didn't really enjoy writing it because I'm used to making stuff up, you know. <laughs> and um, I, just, I just sort of laboured through it. I didn't know whether people would want to read it or not, and I held on to it once I'd finished it, or what I thought was finished, um, I held on to it for almost a year, thinking, will I publish this or will I just have this for my family? Um, but I, in the end, I sent it away to the publishers. Um, and my very lovely editor said, oh, yes, OK, but what about this paper that you presented at such and such a place? And what about this paper when you said that? And you've mentioned letters... Have you still got the letters? Can we put them in the book? And so the book became a bit bigger and a bit bigger, but I don't want to go there anymore. <laughs> so what was difficult for you about writing about your own life rather um, than making things up? Just writing about myself, I suppose. Um, in the beginning, I, w I was having a good time writing about the birds outside in the trees and, and my grandparents and parents and... Um, it was when I got to have to start writing about myself that I didn't enjoy it, and I, I even found it tedious, really. Really? Yes. I just want to reassure our audience that your book is not tedious at all, and it was also a finalist <laughs> in this year's Ocker New Zealand Book Awards. One of the things that I think is tremendous is the way you describe your childhood and being part of a very loving Pākehā family and being part of a very loving Māori whānau and standing in those two worlds. Yes. I think I had a very privileged childhood in that way because um, I had two whole families, you know, of parents who were very loving towards us as children and who wanted everything for us and who believed we could do anything that we wanted to do, you know, and they supported us. But also their families, you know, our aunties and uncles and cousins and on both sides of the family. Um, so I think I was very fortunate to have that and to have the freedom that I had, really, in those days. You say that, that you had two loving families, but there was a little bit of opposition, wasn't there, at first to your father marrying your mother? Um, the aunties. Yes, from certain sections of... Oh, yes, yes, I know. Um, there was, that's right, from my father's sisters. So the Maori aunties yes. were suspicious of your Pākehā mother? Yes, yes. Um, but they got over that and they became best friends, really. It was an education for me, actually, because I'm naive, mm. reading about the obstacles that, they were, that were then for 
for your parents not able to get a home loan, for example. Yes, that's right. So home loans, loans of any description weren't available to Māori. And um, my mother couldn't get it because they weren't available to women either. <laughs> so, yes, I, I don't quite know how my father managed to build our house in Melrose. Um, that's, uh, I wish that I had asked about those sorts of things when, when I was able to because um, they just weren't available, so I don't know whether he had an underwriter or to a loan or, or how he managed that. Now, when you went to school in Wellington and you were a Maori girl, you looked mm. Maori, and... Yes, that's when I, when I went to school, that's when I found out I was a Maori girl. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that and it didn't... At the time when I overheard this being said, it didn't sound as though it was a very good thing to be. So I went home and told my mother... That I, that I knew that I was a Māori girl. And she said, well, of course you are. You're like your, and, you know, um, you look like your aunties. These were my father's father's sisters. And when you grow up, you'll be just like them. And I thought that would be a great thing to be. So then I became very comfortable with that and kind of learned not to listen to those negative things that were that I heard, I did listen to them, and you know they they were hurtful. But it, it's um, it's as you were mentioning, you know, having two strong families who endorsed who I was and believed in me, and you can get through those things and brush them aside, like my mother did for me, my Pākehā mother. Yeah. Mm. And your mother was also summoned when there was a dispute over how old you really were. Oh, yes. Well, that was a bit strange. I went to school being able to read. It's not that we had a family. It's not that we had books in our family. I had one book when I was a little child. Um, I think it was a book of fables and so forth, Red Riding Hood and so forth. Um, so, but I did learn, learn to read from the wheat box box and the, and the cremator packet and um, the, the freelance and the Auckland Weekly that we used to have, you know, looking at all the advertisements mainly and the advertisements on the front of trams that we travelled around on. So by the time I got to school, I could read pretty well and... Um, this was something that seemed to get me into trouble because I was called up to the sister's desk, um, which naughty children were always called up to or, you know, it was something that you didn't think you would like to, to do. And I was questioned about how old I was. I wasn't five, I was six or I was seven. And I thought I was five, so I didn't, you know, I didn't understand this at all while I, while I was being told I was seven and I'd been to school before. And, well, I knew that I hadn't been to school before and I started to doubt about my age. And, 
because this was the teacher and you had to listen to the teacher and you had to be good and the teacher was right, you know, always right, that sort of thing. Um, so I was there hanging my head, not answering because I didn't know what to say. And um, then it wasn't until the teacher said, oh, I'd been to school before, I was sort of shaking my head. Um, so where did I learn to read? Well, I didn't know the answer to that either. So I was just dumbfounded. And in, in the end, my mother was sent for and things were sorted out. I was five. I did know how to read, um, you know. And um, so after that, I was kind of rewarded for being able to read. Uh, and um, that turned out all right because I think the dangerous thing for me was that I realised that I wasn't supposed to be able to read and I nearly decided that I wouldn't do it or I shouldn't do it. Um, I think it's very... And, and I remembered all of that when I was a teacher, you know, um, how easily, how easy it could be for, pe for kids to be put off reading and Absolutely. not want to do it, yes. Could we just talk briefly about your, your Māori grandmother, Gunny? Mm. who you said was a very quiet woman, yes. said almost nothing. Mm. But I still got the feeling she was a very strong influence on you. Yes, she was a strong influence on me. Even now, you know, I often think about her and um, realise what her life, as, as I've got older, realise what her life was probably like. Um, I mean, I didn't know that her first language was Māori, I'd never heard her speak it because she wouldn't speak it in front of children. Um, it was something that was done behind closed doors, really, uh, because she thought she would disadvantage us. I mean, not only her, but her, our other grandmothers, our other grandfathers, you know, um, of my father's family. It was that whole age group. They'd been punished at school for speaking their language. My father's generation had as well, and even my husband's generation <laughs> when it comes to that. But um, so they thought they would disadvantage us by exposing us to this language. So it's so different today, you know. I was interested to read that. I mean, she married your your grandfather, whose last yes. name was Gunson. And that he came from quite the family in Auckland that his, one of his relatives, his uncle, was a, a mayor of Auckland. In yes. fact, oversaw, as I was reading, um, oversaw the creation of the Auckland Museum and the memorial on One Tree Hill. But that your grandfather was the, the black sheep, the basket maker, <laughs> yes. living on the coast with your grandmother. Yes, yeah. You come from a family of black sheep, I think. Oh, well... Um by the way, I do you, know it's you know, sheep, really. His, his, his other brothers, mm. I don't know that he had a sister. I met some of his brothers, but they were all professional people, doctors and lawyers and so forth. And he was, he made baskets, yes. And he married my grandmother. And you have very fond memories of him too, collecting his, the wood and, and you helping him, yes. Oh, yes. He was a very amiable grand, grandfather. He was a lovely grandfather. 
and we used to help him. We used to go up in the bush and collect superjack for his baskets. But, and he grew his own willows, uh, those willows that grow straight up. And, um, and he used to cut those willows, bundle them up, put them into the creek to do something that was good for them. And then he, had, he used to strip them. And we used to help him with this, you know. We were always hanging around. And he always allowed us to be hanging around. So um, I think I was very lucky in my parents and grandparents who spent time with us. Mm. One thing that people may not know about you is that you might not have become a writer, you might have become a professional basketball player. Oh. You were quite the athlete. Oh, oh yes. Um, I don't know about professional. I don't think it was professional then, but yes, I was heading along there. Um, and I really enjoyed sport. I loved sport. But it was easy. You know, I, it was easy for me to be a top sports person um, while I was at school. And I was aware, even then, of that kind of stereotype, which, I mean, I think I was doing well, pretty well academically, but I'd always had this feeling that I was doing well because it, it was an attitude, really, that I had to prove myself to every new teacher that I had. I had to prove that I could do this or that. And it, and it, it, it affected me in the way that if I was doing well, I thought it was because the other kids weren't, were being lazy or it was a fluke or, you know, something like that. Um, so I was aware of falling into this, of being the stereotype of this Māori girl who was good at sport but not very good at anything else, you know. And you start to believe those things about yourself and I think it's still happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Now, your time at Teachers College... I was really interested to read about the kind of experience you had there because it seemed enormously um, enlightened and creative yes. and that you were really encouraged in both visual art and also in writing and to discover New Zealand literature. I mean, was yes. that when you started really reading other New Zealand yes. writers? Yes, yes. We'd never had it put in front of us at, in school at all. Um, so this was a real eye-opener to me, you know, that there were these people, and some of them were in the teacher's college itself. Um, Anton Vott was a, quite a well-known poet, but also one of the students was, had had work published and, and so forth. And um, we were being introduced to the work of Frank Sargison, and here I was hearing the Kiwi vernacular, seeing it on the page, and for the first time, really, and the penny was slowly dropping, you know, that that's what real writing was. It was writing from your own experience. And that's what Shakespeare did, you know. All of these things, you start to realise that the reason sometimes you couldn't progress with your essay topics was because 
they were about um, things like a day in the forest and I never related that to a day in the bush you know that I knew all about um, so I was and we all did it if we got a topic like a day in the forest we were writing from reading experience from comic books and all, all those sorts of things rather than from our own experience so I think that's very different these days. Mm. So at Training College you also met Dick, your husband, oh, yes. future husband. Even though you said you did not want to get married, you had no intention of getting married. Mm. So what made you change your mind? Oh, meeting Dick, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, he looks, I mean, he was a very handsome man. But in like, your wedding photos, you both look so adorable. Really do. He was very handsome. Yes, yes. So when you did get married, actually, didn't you come to this region for a honeymoon trip? You came to Marlborough? Uh, Yes, St. Omar. I don't quite know where that is now. And it was your first time on a plane, wasn't it, coming here? Yes, yes, it was. I was 20, I think, 20, 21. Mm. So you two set off to become country teachers. Yes. And you were for many years around the North Island teaching in country districts. Yes. Now, Dick came from a... He didn't come from a city as you had. He was used to this. Yes. But it was different for you. How did you, how did you cope with the, the change, living in very remote places often? I loved every minute of it, really. You know, um, especially... I, I think I, I was a little lonely for a time when I was at home by myself with two children... But then I, I sort of got back into teaching um, because we went to a, a soul-charged school up north, which became a two-teacher school. And, I, and so, you know, it was like an extension of, an, an extension of home, really, because we were living right next door to it. So it was... Um, it was a really wonderful teaching experience being in the small schools. And just having the children fitting into that, because there were two, you know, I I was teaching five-year-olds to eight-year-olds and having the children with me, so it was like naught to eight. And that's all it was like, um, because the children learned from each other and looked after each other. They had all these babysitters. (laughs) And you needed that because... I mean, I knew this, but I had to keep rechecking. Mm. You had seven children in ten years. Yes. Yes. See, to me, that's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds crazy, doesn't it? I hate <laughs> I know you've got some of your descendants in the yes, room. Yes, yes. But you can tell me confidentially, do you kind of wish you'd stopped at three? Or... <laughs> No, no, no. I don't, I've got no <laughs> got regrets, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky to have, you know, um, a large family now. And I was then, because children played outside all the time and they ate their vegetables and they went to bed at 8 o'clock. <laughs> now, you say they went to bed at 8 o'clock. One of the things that really amazed me about your work ethic and Dick's was that you would, get, you would have a full day teaching and your family, 
you would get the children to bed, then you would sit down to write, and he would sit down to study for his master's in education. Yes. After you'd done all the prep for the next day, mm -hmm. what drove you to to be so disciplined and such hard workers, so determined? Oh, um, well, for, for Dick, he's, he was never any stranger to hard work. And I think that's what um, the kind of life that he led could have prepared him for anything, the arts, the teaching, the farming, anything, you know, because they um, living... Ruatoria was the hometown, but he lived out of Ruatoria um, on the coast, and they were self-sufficient. They, they lived off the land. They were not part of the money economy, and they learned so much. And they were, um, But also... When you ask that question, we were both really, really interested in teaching. And we weren't going to compromise anything to do with the family because of teaching or writing or studying. So we had to find ways of fitting everything in. And that's what we did. Probably gave up some, some things, I don't know what really. Knitting and sewing, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but can you knit and sew, just out of interest? I can knit. My, my sewing wasn't all that flash, but I did that as well. My mother came here from England in the 60s, and she said that she thought a woman in New Zealand were these superwomen who could preserve and sew and knit. And was this, Were you one of those superwomen? Uh, yes, I did all of those things, yes. And then you wrote your book. So let's talk about you gaining your confidence as a writer. So for you, part of it was community, wasn't it? The Pen Woman's group that helped encourage you to write yes. and submit your work. I, I'd always been, um, I'd always been good at writing. While I, throughout school, you know, there were. I was never. Well, once I left primary school, I was never the tops. You know. Top student, but when it came to writing, I was, and I always loved it. And um, uh, so, I, I, the, the Pen Women Society came to my notice, and I joined that as a country member when we were out in the schools. And it was there that I really got the opportunity because they had short story competitions every month. So there was always something I could do every month. I didn't do it every month, but um, that was the motivation. And that's where I got to start. And those stories, once I'd found out when I was at Teachers College what writing really was, that you could, um, that there was such a thing. Oh, well, the other important thing, going back a bit, um, when I started to read the uh, New Zealand writing by New Zealanders and really relating to the what there was, the, the backdrop, you know, um, and the voice, the voice, the voices that I heard in Frank Sargison, I then came across a different voice and this was the voice of Amelia Batistich who was a Dalmatian New Zealander, 
And there was another voice. And then I, it twigged to me that I had my own voice. And that's when I started exploring it, was when I was writing these stories for the pen women's competitions. And, send, and they also encouraged um, you to get published, and they had these, this big tome that you could look through and see where you could send your work away to get published. And I started doing that. And that's where my first short stories appeared. And that's where they were seen by Phoebe Meikle of Longman Paul, who asked me if I had enough for a collection. So I've been quite blessed, you know. I asked for my work instead of trying to, you know, put it all together and sending it off to lots of publishers and so forth. So... Um, and that collection, Wairiki, was the first short story collection ever published by a Māori woman. Yes, that is correct. It was hard getting her to admit that, but it is correct. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. yes and not yes, only that, that but it won the no, Hubert I Church. Just, why I'm a little bit reluctant is because I've always found that a slightly embarrassing because um, of the women oh, and, and Māori men who were who were writing short stories and they were appearing in Ho magazine and different places. And um, people like um, Arapira Blanc and, and um, Mayhana Dury and... Jackie Sturm. Uh, um, hmm? JC Sturm. Yes, oh, JC yeah. Sturm even before that, yes. And, and I think really they were the pioneers. Um, I think the first book that I saw by a Māori was Hone Tufare's um, No Ordinary Son and that was um, that was an amazing thing yeah So you won an award for Wairiki, you won the Hubert Church and it say best first book of fiction at our National Book Awards Yes, yes. and that was judged by Janet Frame and I thought that was I really sort of felt proud of that. That's amazing, because yes. she herself had, had won it as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She won yes. it for her first yes. book too. Yes. My guest this evening, Steve Brawny, is one of New Zealand's best-known journalists and authors. Steve, welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival 2022. As an author, uh, I'm very lucky in being sort of sent around the country to literary festivals like this and I kid you not by the way uh, Blenheim and I think I've been to I've been to everyone except the one in Blackball but uh, of all of them uh, I've been here twice before and this is the best this is actually the best yeah no, thank you it's, it's just the vibe of it it's really great it's really welcoming and friendly I had an interesting comment on it. Uh, I'm quite good friends with um, a musician called Shane Carter. I, he said, oh, uh, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going to, uh, going to Blenheim for the Literary Festival, the Books Festival. And he said, oh, New Zealand's best books festival. There you go. And I still say there's um, any of us who win it after you, any Maori writer who wins it after you, we we feel like you've trailblazed for us, so I won it. Kelly Anna Murray. 
Yes, back right. in Manawatu, and now as someone who's appearing at the festival, Rebecca K. Riley, who I think is in the audience, won it this year. So I hadn't thought of it either. Yes, mm. it was it was really mm. great. Then mm. your your novel Mutafenua was first novel published by a Maori woman writer as well. Mm. And I mean, your career started to build. Did you ever feel that it was? Too, everything was too much. All your different interests, and as you grew as a writer and became more well known, you were being invited to more things and invited to be more of a public figure. Um, I, especially when I first started out and started going to festivals and different things, I really made myself go to them, um, and I was never really comfortable. But uh, you sort of sign these things that you will do, you know, a certain amount of promotion of your work when you sign the contract. And I thought, well, I kind of owe it to the publishers um, to to do these things, and I owe it to myself to make myself go and, you know, get up there and answer questions. <laughs> and it's it's got easier, has it? Mm. But you never really got comfortable with it entirely. Not totally, no. No. Mm. But it's hard, isn't it, when you're a writer that people often expect you to be able to do a range of things. They want you to stand up and give an inspiring speech. They want you yes. to talk in detail about your books. Yes. And sometimes you just want to get on with writing them. <laughs> yes. No, um, you know, I do it for the work. I don't like the attention for myself so much, but I would do it for the work, yeah. Because I know what's gone into the, into the books. I know that it's hard work. Um, so. Can we talk a little bit about two? You know I'm obsessed with that novel of yours. Oh, okay. Oh, I, I think if you haven't read two, then really you must read the book at once and you must get all your children and grandchildren to read it as well. And it would make the most terrific movie. And we need to talk about another movie in a moment. I just remembered. <laughs> um, but part of that, I think, followed on from you reading more than 20 years after your father's death, the, the notes and journals he kept when he was fighting in World War II with the Maori Battalion. Yes. Why did it take you so long to read his, his journal? Because it wasn't given to me to read. <laughs> it was with my mother's things and... Um just one day she said, oh, you might like to go through this. And I found this little, it was only a little notebook, you know, a little notebook. And it was only about 24 pages of that where he'd written about um, the journey from Wellington to Cairo. And nothing about, you know, nothing really about the actions that took place in war, and he was a uh, he was a signal signalman, and all I'd always thought that the you know they had all the dotted out Morse code away safe in some um, headquarters somewhere, and that would be his war. I didn't really know until I started researching for two that the signalmen were out there in the in the front line, putting up lines and carrying their gear into the trenches and 
all that, all of that. So I was horrified <laughs> as to when, you know, the the war that my father had. Mm. Did he not talk about it at all to you? No, he talked about it as so all the mischief that they got up to and those sorts of funny, he told funny stories. It sounded as though they laughed and sang their way all around through the, through the whole war. Mm. Your, your description of the Battle of Monte Cassino, I think, is just a really fantastic set piece of that novel and would make a fantastic movie. I understand it would probably be an expensive one with all the explosions alone. Mm -hmm. But you've been involved recently in another movie version of one of your books, Cousins, which came out 30 years ago this year, the book, and it's become a a movie. What was your role in transferring it from page to screen? Well, I was... well. Not long after the book was published, probably a few years, I met Mera to Mita by chance at the Auckland airport and she said she wanted to make Portiki into a movie and the rights to that had already... Barry Barclay had the rights to that. It didn't happen in the end, but I told her that and she said, all right, well, I want to do Cousins then. And so... She was, she was to be the writer and the director and the producer, I think. I don't know, but anyway, she was, she was the writer of it. I didn't know how to sit about writing a movie. And, um, but that was a, a very long, drawn-out thing with Merata being mostly out of the country and I was supposed to be helping with the script. So we got together in a, a few times, but I don't think the time was right for it at that stage. So it went through several iterations. I was kind of involved the whole way through in some way or another. And then um, there were, it, was very, it was very difficult getting funding for that movie. Um, but before Briar, Grace Smith and Ainsley Gardner um, decided to take it on, that they would like to do it. I did a... I I felt that it needed um, to be focused on one of the cousins, more than all three, and um, should be focused on Mata more. And I thought... If I did that, the other two cousins were going to disappear and I, I, I didn't feel good about that. But they actually didn't. They didn't disappear. They were important in the, in the whole story. So something a bit like that was what I handed over to Briar as the writer. But what you saw on screen was Briar. You know, that was Briar's work that we saw on screen. And I just think that they did a wonderful job of it getting the essence of it, you know, when so much has to be left out, really, from a book. You're condensing something down, so they had to make that decision. Um, So I was really... I was a bit nervous thinking about a book going onto a screen, but I just thought they just did a marvellous job of it. 
And it's testimony to your great characters as well, because I know that talking about your title from the centre, that characters, people, much more than some imposed idea or storyline, is really at the centre of your writing. Is that an unfair characterisation of it? Yes, uh, I think it was an apt title in the end. Um, in the, the very first, um, when I wrote Portiki, there's a to parapara. I based, I based Portiki around the idea of a fai kōrero, where you have a to parapara, you go into the main body of what you're talking about, and then you end with waiata. And um, I think those words are in that toparapara, from the centre, but from the centre, from the nothing, whatever. And um, But it's also the way I feel about starting out on a piece of work, a long piece of work, that I feel that I start in the centre or I'm in the centre of it rather than at the beginning of it looking along a great big long road and the end might be up there somewhere. So being at, having the feeling of being in the centre makes it all closer to me so that I feel that I can reach out from where I am in the centre and bring this in and bring that in and bring that in um, from whichever direction. And it is probably a cumbersome way of working in a way because I don't have any plan and um, that is my plan to just bring in what I need and sometimes I, I need more characters than what I thought I would. I need more narrator, narrators as I did in Chappie. I thought I would have one narrator and I ended up with three um, and that was because I didn't really know Chappie. I knew these other three narrators because they were part of my life. But I didn't know this. I couldn't get into the psyche of a Japanese man and I didn't want to try. So um, Chappie is a kind of um, mystery character. Um, and he's central to the book because of these other ones that I do know. So... Um, when I start out, I don't really know quite what I'm going to need. And those needs include the research that I have to do as well, which I had to do with cousins and two, and, you know, um, dog side story. And um, also the backstory is important to me, to the characters, because I think that's where you get the depth from. You've got to have their backstories as well. It sounds as though you're very patient with the whole process. You're not trying to rush yourself or... No. No, I need to take the time that I need. That's why I don't sign any contracts um, until I'm nearly there because I think in the end I mightn't want to publish it or, and then I've signed a contract which makes you feel as though you have to um, finish it or... Um, that, it, that you can't just leave it there or you have to, you, you might have to fit it into a certain time frame which that, that doesn't suit me, no. 
Pat, we, I think we should go to questions from the audience. I'm conscious that there's quite a few aspects of your life we haven't begun to discuss yet, like your activism. The, the quiet activist could be a, another title for this book. <laughs> but if people have questions, would you, would you put your hand up so the, someone with a mic can see you? Uh, hi, Patricia. It's a, a pleasure to be able to ask you this question. Um, I am a preschool teacher and I've read queer and the Apunga Wedewede a lot. And um, I've always wondered where your inspiration came from in that book to, you know, for the old lady to sit beside this, the spider and a whare and mm. compare their weaving and, and their life's journey. Um, I, I ask this because my in my own family, um, you know, my granddad had a kind of a fascination with spiders and he actually had pet spiders that um, I was really terrified of. So um, is that something that you got from your own childhood, that that spider and the, and the queer? Yes, I was asked by um, a group of women... To write to write a book, you know, they they were looking for other book, you know. I don't think I'm other, but other people are other. Um, but um, so I decided because because they realised that there weren't books for Māori children, you know, to where they could where they could see themselves represented. Or other children, they wanted a, an arrange of different books. So I started thinking about it. I was thinking about creatures, <laughs> um, birds, so forth. And then I thought, children don't. The in those times, they didn't really see our native birds, um, or our even our insects, and so forth. So I thought of a spider, and then I thought, my second thought was, what do spiders and people have in common? They have weaving. And I sat down and wrote that story in half an hour. <laughs> that was yeah. your first children's book? Yes. And yes. you've written a number since. Yes. Mm. And it was well received and still being taught? It's become a classic. Yes. yes. 40 years on, it must be 40 years. It hasn't years. been out of print. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. <laughs> half Thank an hour's work. question. But I told, I told my publisher that I, it only took me half an hour to write. He said it took you 20 years to write because, <laughs> <laughs> because you'd been um, teaching in infant classes and reading to children for all of those years, which I loved to do. And I knew what a good children's story was or could be, you know. So maybe he was right. Absolutely. Do you have any other questions? Uh, kia ora, Patricia. Um, just, for, I guess, following on from that question about children's books, you know, the um, I'm not a teacher, but the... Um, the curriculum is changing to teach New Zealand history. What would be your one kind of 
important point that you'd like to be included in the New Zealand curriculum about New Zealand history? Can you help me with that? So is there anything you think should be included in the, new, in the curriculum now about New Zealand history? Is there something that you think would be really important to be included? Matariki, I think. You know, all the science and all the, um, everything that's to do with that could make a whole curriculum, I believe. Um, I think teachers, or from what I hear, there's been some unease, you know, about teaching the history. I mean, we've got to do it, and we've got to have the resources. But um, it sounded to me at first as though there was going to be a concentration on wars, <laughs> you know, the Māori wars and the, the wars between Māori and Pākehā and all those issues and so forth. Um, I think probably gardening would be good. <laughs> Art, you know, all those sort of things that are everyday things. Food, clothing. But I don't know how that curriculum is going. My son is involved in, in that. Um, te reo, of course. I, th I learned more about the New Zealand history from reading your book than I probably have in the last 30-something years. So thank you for sharing your stories with us. Kia ora. I didn't quite hear that. She just say nice things about you. It's a very disruptive corner down here. Yeah. <laughs> Do people have other questions? I'm just a little hard of hearing. Yes. <laughs> oh, here we have one down in the front row here. Oh, kia ora, fire. Uh, we've actually met... Um, about 12 years ago now, I was a doctoral student and um, I was at a conference up, in, up at Auckland University and at that conference, instead of having uh, keynote speakers, we had keynote listeners and you, oh. were, you were one of the keynote listeners uh, along with Margaret Mutu and Roger Marker oh. and uh, you provided me really good feedback for my, for my doctoral thesis at the time. You probably don't remember but... Um, I, I kind of have, my question is, um, uh, my mother won't read anything that I write. She, she won't? M my mother uh, won't read anything I write. So I'm a historian, but, and I write articles and book chapters, but she, mm. she's just not interested. Um, but she does like historic fiction. And I'm wondering, uh, do, do you think academically trained historians can write academic, uh, can write um, uh, historic fiction. I'd like to. I'd like my mother sure to, read, to read me so, read something I write. Yeah. But she's not going to read an article. Uh, so the question is, how, what do I have to do to switch from being, a, <laughs> switch from being a, 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 an academic historian to somebody who can write, someone who can write, historic fiction. I, don't, I can't really tell you that. I, I just think it's probably the opposite to what I... You probably can do the opposite to what I do. <laughs> right, start writing fiction and then I have to, you know, scramble around and read lots of books and do my research, whereas you might already have that and that's what will inform 
your fiction. Um, because, you know, that's right, isn't it? Fiction always has to have something that informs it, um, whether, it's, whether it's history or whether it's social science or, or whatever we're doing. So. You, know, you know who's got a cracking book coming out later this year is Monty Souter. He's written a historical novel set in a completely Maori world of the late 18th century. Really terrific. And he's got a planned trilogy following those characters through oh, the generations. Wow. Yeah. So he's made the, the move into, uh, from the dark side into the light. <laughs> <laughs> so it is possible. But it's really focusing, I mean, as Pat does on characters, isn't it? It's finding the people, the where yes. the story resides. Yes, that's, that's the most important thing for me as characters because everything else belongs to them. You know, their voice, their setting, their... Whatever they do. Their, yeah, yeah, whatever they do, whatever they say. Um, um, and whatever the storyline is, it belongs to them. So you've got to be true to them, really. Yeah. Thank you. Did anyone else like some writing tips while we have Pat here? <laughs> Pat says, put your, bed, your seven children to bed by eight o'clock, then get cracking on your work. <laughs> I mean, there were many other things we could have talked about tonight, and I encourage you all, if you haven't read the book, to read it, because of everything, I mean, some hilarious things in here where Pat takes on the Ministry of Education about, about racist children's <laughs> stories to, you know, fighting the um, road about to go through ancestral land to creating your own whare nui and, and learning the skills needed, your whole community learning the skills needed from scratch. Yes. Mm -hmm. It is a, a very inspirational story and in suggesting how times change and what's been lost as well as found. Mm. Um, but I believe we have someone here who wants to step forward at this point. Patricia Nga mihi ki a koroa, tēnā koroa, tēnā koroa. Basically said thank you. <laughs> <laughs> In a number of ways, but um, so privileged to have um, Patricia Grace amongst us and um, letting us know so much about how your stories have evolved and putting your heart into them. And um, to you, Paula, thank you for the interviews. It's mm. been wonderful. And it would be lovely if we could um, sing a waiata. Yeah? Um, te aroha, and then all lines. Te aroha, te whakapono, me te rangi marie, tātou tātou. Oh, okay. Yeah? Oh, aye, aye. Ah, no excuses. Te... Aroha te whakapono me te
Everyone, thank you thank so much, you. Patricia. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Patricia will come outside oh, and sign books, all right? So don't all get us settled down. Get out there. But first, we have to de microphone you. Come on, take your microphone oh, off. Thank you. That was a great conversation from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. For more information about the event, head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. Thanks for listening.